0: Economic indicators. Who
1: knows where this is going to end
2: up? To understand the economy, you have to understand
1: human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST.
2: How are you doing there? It is David. It's time for the podcast. Again, weird, weird week. But before I get you, we're talking here, John and I, and John talks very (laughs) loud. Say, so, yeah. And it's a sort of thing that I, I noticed when I was a kid, but as we get older, it's becoming more and more pronounced. You, just, you know, you need one of those ear horns like a fellas had in the Victorian age.
1: <laughs> well, my kids at home just saying, Jesus, will you just keep it down? I've no idea. That Are you I'm sure it's not the content of what you're saying that they're. <laughs> Maybe it is. I get overexcited as well. That's the other problem. But with regards to this podcast, my voice spills over onto your mic your voice doesn't spill onto mine so there's always so when i sound a bit echoey it's because i'm so loud i come on to macro's voice as well so there you go
2: it's true though i just tell you uh, sometimes we're talking to people let's say in the states and there's a moment where john clearly thinks that he has to <laughs> deliver to america
1: In person. Yeah. And he's bellowing and all the windows. London is never so bad, but America. America.
2: (laughs) Far away. (laughs) Father Ted. Close. Far away. Close. Anyway, what's the crack? Good? All good. Yeah, all good. This has been a fantastically interesting week for economics. Yeah. Have you you got funeral music, maybe? Try this. Because this week is the funeral of austerity. Okay? This is the end of austerity. Austerity is now as an idea officially over. Now, if you can imagine, there's a country called Osteria that's full of Osterians. They're not <laughs> Austrians; they're Osterians, right? And every time the government spends money, they say, oh my God, you're going to have to cut back, etc. There is still a vestige of that tribe in Ireland because we had a particularly bad experience with that maybe 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, and then seven or eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. But this has now... What we've seen all around the world, not just our own budget here in Ireland this week, but everywhere, is the end of that idea that all government spending is wrong, number one. All government spending is inefficient, number two. And that monetary policy, which is the money side of things, is better than fiscal policy, which is the tax and spend. All governments now have, thankfully, come around
1: to... The idea... Your way of thinking. Exactly.
0: No, but it's...
2: We've been saying this since March. Yeah, it's true. Is that, you know, don't worry about balancing budgets. Don't worry about government deficits. What you need to worry about now, the real jeopardy now is depression. The jeopardy now is not the rising of inflation and interest rates in 10 years' time and what the implications of that will be. The real jeopardy now is what Martin Luther King talked about the profound urgency of now, that now is the problem. Yeah. And what we see all over all over the world is that
1: austerity is over. Well, it's interesting that the MD of the IMF agrees with you. Kristalina Georgieva. Have a listen to this, what she said.
3: Now is not yet the time to balance the books. Of course, now is a good time to think about balancing the books down the road. But it is more important to make sure that firms and workers are supported while we are still wrestling with the pandemic. And if I may, now is also the time to think how this support may be best shaped. In the first months of the pandemic, rightly so, support was universal. But we cannot forever provide support to everyone, knowing that the post-pandemic economy would be different from the one
2: we had before. So the interesting is, she is Bulgarian. First of all, she's a woman, right? Head of the IMF, yeah. which, is, which is great. It's the second. It's the second, which yeah. is really good. And the chief economist of the IMF is a woman, is an Indian woman. So it's there's a it's... The feminization of economics is something that economics is long overdue. It's a very good thing. She's also Bulgarian. If you've come through the former Soviet Union, the former Soviet bloc, if your life experience is the total collapse of the institutions, the total collapse of the government. I remember going to Bulgaria in 1996. They had hyperinflation. So I was in Sofia, hyperinflation. They introduced what was called a currency board, which they tied their currency originally to the Deutschmark, then the, the dollar. They had to actually stabilise the LEV, the Hungarian currency. It's uh, the, called it the LEV. The LEV, the Bulgarian currency, right. right? You had total collapse of society, total collapse of society. Mass immigration, you had corruption, you had gangsters, you had a voucher privatisation, which largely just allowed a gangster class take all the goodies. So exactly what happened in Russia. Right? Yeah, yeah. If you've gone through that, you realise the absolute need for a strong state to actually balance everything, to come in and in times of trouble to actually... There was a great expression about leadership. I can't remember who said it. And they said the role of the leader is to understand the anxiety of the people and do something about it. Right? Yeah. So the anxiety of the people right now is lockdowns, it's COVID my job is, can I pay my rent? Will this company open? Will I reopen my company again? In order to fix that, the state has to understand this and do something about it. And the problem with austerity, and the problem with the idea of austerity, John, is that this was peddled all over the place Mm. by academic economists, almost all of them employed by the state. Yeah. Don't take a risk in their lives. Never wake up in the morning and think, how am I going to pay the bills? And this was just these elegant mathematical equations on a piece of paper. But it worked, right? Austerity has, look, austerity... It got us over.
1: out of the hole that, that we were in. No,
2: I mean, again, I, I think that that's not the case. I think that at its root cause, austerity harms poor people because poor people depend on the state more. Yeah for health, for education, for wage, for housing, whatever. So the more you are dependent on the state, the bigger the amplification of the impact of austerity. Mm. On the other hand, what these policies was, they said, we'll be austerity with respect to taxation and spending, but we will cut interest rates. So this is what happened in the last 10 years. Mm. Cutting interest rates this is the idea. Remember trickle-down economics? Mrs. Thatcher talked about it.
1: Yeah, Reagan but, as well was yeah. a big so This is, this of is that.
2: kind of hyper-trickle-down. So what by, mm. by cutting interest rates, we'll make people who own assets rich. Those people will get rich because basically if you own assets and interest rates fall, the price of the asset rises yeah. because the discount rate yeah. which you apply to the asset falls, right? Those people get rich, so they're very rich. They will spend, and then their spending will trickle down to the poor paupers at the bottom yeah. who've been screwed by austerity. Think yeah. about if you had designed a policy to create Brexit, to create Donald Trump, to create populism, to create the cleavage between classes, you couldn't have done it better than this loose, fis- loose monetary, tight fiscal policy. That combination. Yeah. Now, thankfully, uh, even here our Austerians, people who live in Austeria here, okay, <laughs> yeah. have come to the view... Well, no, they're still writing nonsense. I was, there was some fell on the radio the, the other day saying... I can't remember since, oh, my God, if we, borrow, if we borrow money, the country will go bankrupt again. You're like, snap out of it, man. Right? Okay? Get <laughs> uh, with the yeah. program. Ah, you know, really, really, yeah. there is a snap out of it moment, right? Get with the program, okay? So the end of austerity is a big deal in global economics, a big, big deal, because it means that the state and fiscal policy and taxation and state building, et cetera, is now primary... Over, what was the case, which was the private sector, and the problem—the yeah. private sector, the private sector has to build at the end of the day because markets are markets, and the world needs markets. You can't redistribute, you can't organize countries without markets. But what that austerity and low interest rate combination did for the last ten years is it profoundly amplified inequality. Because it drove up asset prices, yeah. and the assets that most people incur in their lives are, are faced with in their lives are house prices. Yeah. So if you drive up house prices, you make the people who own houses rich, but the people who don't own houses poor. So you drive a wedge between societies. So now what we've got to do, and it's great that the IMF, even even the head of the World Bank, Carmen Reinhart, who's a very famous economic historian, yeah. who was at the vanguard of this idea of cutting back. Government deficit. She actually wrote a paper which was quite spurious, it, it turned out, uh, which basically said that there was a rule that if your government deficit went above 100 percent of GDP, your economy would start to contract. It ended up being complete nonsense, but it gave cover. Okay. It gave cover to lots and lots of austerity obsessives. Yeah. He said, look, Carmen Reinhardt, this great economist, has said that. It actually transpired, people ran the numbers. They actually mixed up their Excel spreadsheets, they actually got the whole thing wrong. Which is, oh no yeah 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 and it was peer-reviewed and all that sort of stuff but again what it shows you is like
1: it, this was like a, a
2: kind of administration mistake yeah 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 it was some researcher put the wrong button right oh, man. yeah that no, was actually true but to come back I think it's a it's it's a time for rejoicing because what it means is that economics has liberated itself from ideologues and I've always said, that economics is not a set of rules that are immutable, like the laws of physics, right? Yeah. Like the laws of engineering, okay? Mm. So for example, you know, an engineer can tell you, see that bridge there? If you put too much weight on that bridge, it will collapse. There is a moment at which it'll collapse, right? Because you're dealing with inanimate objects that are defined by absolutely unyielding laws. Yeah. Economics is much softer because you're dealing with us, human beings, And human beings are not inanimate objects, we're emotional objects. And therefore, what happens is economics has to be flexible in the faces of changes in society and react to them rather than say, these are immutable laws and society will bend
1: around them. The opposite is the case. So are you saying this is now an economic paradigm shift and we're heading into a new era altogether?
2: Well, yeah, John, this is what I've been saying actually probably throughout the whole podcast, is that we're in a totally new regime. Remember, like, last March? Yeah. You know, I said, look, you said, what are we going to do about this pandemic? And I said, we're going to spend. Yeah. And then the Minister of Finance was on saying, oh, we people are saying we should spend but we can't spend. Yeah. And what happens when interest rates rise? And, and yeah. And now yeah. they're spending. Now they're the most expansionary budget they've ever had. Yeah. They introduced, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, thankfully, those sort of people are coming around to this way of thinking, which I think is the right
1: thing to do, you know? It's... There's nothing radical about it. But back in March though at the same time you were being accused of, you know, punk economics again. You were being accused of being a radical.
2: John, I'm not radical, I'm just first. <laughs> first to see this shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean that's it's important to understand. This is what I'm trying to say is that economics is a moving target. Yeah. Because humanity is a moving target and economics is the study of people's day-to-day lives. That's all it is. So our lives are unbelievably impacted by an incredibly amount of complex things. So our economic response to that should be to try and as much as possible as respond to the challenges which are put right in front of you. And this challenge, the lockdown challenge, the COVID challenge, mm. is something we have to react to. So you dispense with the old laws and the old rules. And you say they were good for a while. Yeah. But now we shift in the same way as in 1930s. Roosevelt thinks, see that guy Keynes, he's got these ideas. These are different to everybody else. I'm gonna have a listen to him. Right. Change the whole script in economics. So economics goes through paradigm so,
1: shifts. Okay, so have we been here before then? Or yeah, is this I, some completely new economics that we need to No, I don't think it's completely new. I think it I think like a lot of things the basic
2: ideas are still very much the case. Mm. Somebody else once said, the consistent mind is the hobgoblin of mediocrity.
1: <laughs> oh, nice.
2: <laughs> and it's true. Having a consistent yeah. mind is very dull. And Kane said once, somebody said, you've changed your mind. And he said, yeah, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? It's a beautiful nice. way.
1: What a put down.
2: It is isn't put down, but yeah. it's great. So things have changed.
1: So when we were coming, like, if you go back to March then, and when we were coming into this lockdown, we'd never done this before. So you're looking at the economy and you're thinking, what? Like, how do you analyze that?
2: Well, I think I think the most important, critical question for any economist to answer is when you're faced with a new shift in the world. Yeah. You've got to ask the question, what is going on here? Yeah. I know, I know that sounds really simple but that's actually the most critical thing. What is going on? And the reason you've got to answer that is that basically there's two things going on. There's two major imponderables in economics. One is risk and one is uncertainty. Okay, yeah. But these are two totally different things. So risk, for example, is something you can actually put parameters on. You can put odds on. So you'd think Man United might beat Liverpool. you right. say, okay, why do you think that? Well, the bookies are giving me these odds. How have they calculated? Well, they've looked at past form. They've looked at playing at home or away, et cetera, et cetera. They look at the form. And you can actually put together something called a risk profile. And you can make reasonably educated decisions based on a numerical assessment of risk. Sure, That's one thing. Uncertainty is a totally different creature. Uncertainty you cannot put any numbers on. Yeah. And extreme uncertainty is something like COVID. Because yeah. you're hit. It's almost like what Taleb talked about, that black swan black event. Swan, yeah. Which has got a tiny, tiny possibility of happening, but a massive probability of affecting things profoundly mm. when it does. Okay, So therefore, you've got these two ideas called risk and uncertainty. And all economists have to think this, but most economists don't think about uncertainty. They think about risk. So that gives them the confidence that they can forecast. This is why all those agents got the housing market wrong. Right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. okay, because yeah. that was an uncertain event, okay, that there was too many parameters. What I describe it as, uh, it's the Mo
1: approach to economics. Do you remember the Mo Do you remember the Mo the Conditional case, Osweil Yeah, You remember that? Yeah. You I remember it? it. I don't remember the details of it. It's, so the it's Moc- totally different. Okay, the Mo was this idea of, it was a grammatical
2: change, it was about the conditional case. Yeah. being conditional, right? <laughs> It was the big if the, it's the uncertainty, the imponderable. Yeah, if your car is dirty, I will clean it. Yeah, or I, I should clean it, I would clean
1: it. I'm looking at JM here, he's, he's
2: <laughs> French Canadian. <he's, laughs> do you not remember anything? I do, I do. Go on, go on. Okay, so the Mo <laughs> approach to economics is what happens in the future when things are uncertain, right? Right, and it strikes me, right, that what you have to do when you're faced with this extreme uncertainty is try and figure out the big picture. To the best of my ability, Yeah. can I figure out what's going on here? Dispensing with all the rules, everything that happened in the past, everything that went before, yeah. and looking at things objectively. In March, I thought, okay, what's going on here is something unprecedented. What will happen is when you lock down, the critical thing is you will terrify people about the future because people won't know. Mm. Suppliers won't know. Workers won't know. Small businesses won't know. Imagine you run a bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know what the hell's going to happen. So in order for those people to feel assuaged and reduce their fear, right, because fear is what leads to panic and panic is what leads to total collapse in economies, you need to come in and spend. And then you think, okay, well, should I be worried about spending because I'm worried about paying back. Then you're going to say, okay, well, if interest rates are zero, what is very clear is that the central banks have figured out what's going on. Mm. And they've given permission to the state to go and do its thing, right? It's the central bank idea that we can spend, we can lend, but we can't spend. So they've said to the state, go and do your thing. So it was not clear to me. Nothing's ever clear. But on the balance of probabilities, it was the right thing to do. And now what we see, now what we see is six months later, our own Department of Finance, who were quite obviously sent out in March Mm. when we were saying this, say, oh, no, but what about interest rates? So you can't do this. They've actually folded. They folded their tent. They've gone home. Right. And austerity is over. And this is a
1: great thing. Yeah, it is a good thing. Perhaps they needed to go through the motions to get to this point.
2: Maybe, maybe. But again, I just think that... There's unnecessary anxiety incurred by many hundreds of thousands of people by a lack of clarity on economics from the top. You know, it's a bit like HSE messaging. If you get your messaging wrong because you're really confused by what's going on, Mm. then you make people anxious. The last thing you want is to have conversations that we're having at home, all of us on a table saying, do you know the poor old doctors in Enfit? Actually, they don't know what's going on either. Yeah. That's what everyone's talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. the last thing you want, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, 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 that's true. You yeah.
2: want those guys to say, we know what's going on. Yeah.
1: This is Here's the, the way it goes, right? Yeah,
2: And I think economics is the same. You've got to say, okay, answer the big question. What is going on here? Once you've done that, you can isolate risk versus uncertainty. Once you realize you're in uncertainty, and extreme uncertainty, you have to throw the kitchen sink at reducing people's mm. anxieties and worry about the future afterwards.
1: Yeah. I think the thing about uncertainty, though, as well, in this particular case, it wasn't just the uncertainty that COVID brought, but it was also COVID came along in such an uncertain time with Brexit, with the likes of Donald Trump tearing up the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So it added to that anxiety globally. But well, speaking of Brexit, yeah. there is a pram in the corner. There have been
2: toys clearly thrown out of that brand they're (laughs) all over the gaff there are toys everything because johnson's up to it again yeah let's go to london and see what's
0: going on it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work Well, listen, we
2: knew it would come back in all its glory, in all its 7 headed hydra wonder. It's Brexit, it's the UK, it's the negotiations. They seem to have hit the sand over the last couple of days. Huge, huge, huge consequences for Europe, for Britain, for Ireland. I want to talk now, though, about London, what's going on in London with Robert Shrimsley of the FT. Robert, how are you?
4: Hi, David. I'm good, thanks. And you?
2: I'm great. I'm in really good form. But tell me, tell me, what is going on inside the head of Boris Johnson and those
4: around him? Ha, ha, ha. Well, yes, you'd need, a, you'd, you'd need a whole bench of psychologists to work that one out. I, I think fundamentally, if we're talking about Brexit here, the view with, there are two views within Downing Street. First of all, there is a view that sometimes dramatic wrecking interventions are necessary just to get everybody back on keel again. This is a government which, which, which places a value on creative destruction. You smash things up in the hope of building them better. Not a very conservative ideology, but nevertheless the ideology which prevails. Um, the second thing I think is that they've always believed there had to be another crisis moment in these talks. And if you're going to have a crisis moment, you may as well do it with some conviction. And also, you know, perhaps not as late in the day as it sometimes goes in negotiations with the EU. You know, they're, they're very, very well aware that they have the weaker hand. They're very well aware that the clock is not on their side. And so if you're going to force a crisis, try and force it a bit earlier. Let's have it now rather than in you know, late November early December.
2: Well, Robert, let's, I want to talk about the first bit because the second bit is kind of a logical, you know, that's the sort of way that all, most people negotiate. Like if there is a crisis, we will generate the crisis, but we will leave ourselves time to pick up the broken pieces and see where we go. That's mm-hmm. one. I, I, I much prefer to look at the first idea. But in actual fact, this is a kind of a wrecking ball approach to everything.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not specifically talking about the Brexit, but if you, um, there was a very interesting speech that Michael Gove made to Ditchley a, a few months back where he talked precisely about the importance of breaking structures that don't work, even if you don't have a very clear plan what's next, because in the act of rebuilding... You build back better, and he he said, you know, when he was at education, he made some serious mistakes. He broke things um, without a clear plan, and sometimes that was a mistake, and things went wrong. But in the end, this is uh, according to Michael Gove. In the end, they built back better, which is, of course, I'm aware their their party slogan as well. It's not a very conservative. I mean, if you ever read some of the ideology of conservatives, you know, Ed, Edmund Burke's History of the French Revolution has a phrase about, you know, being very wary about build about smashing down an edifice which has served the public good. for for, for many years without approved plans of what to replace it. That's not how they think. They think that sometimes there is so much stasis, there is so much inertia, there are so many people in the establishment wedded to the existing way of doing things that the only way you can get new and creative thinking is to break things and force people to recognize that they can't carry on as they are. And equally, in terms of political tactics, they're big believers in shocking their opponents and knocking them off balance, using sometimes their opponent's weight against them, so that they will do things that seem nonsensical or seem self-destructive in the view that it will create mistakes in their opponents. And, you know, both these positions have a certain logic to them, but they're, you know, they're risky. Like, is this sort of Johnson as Cromwell rather than Johnson as Churchill? Yeah, which Cromwell are we talking about here?
2: Well, not Tommy Boy, because he used to think head the other. The wrecking ball himself, Oliver, who, uh, let's just say, isn't the most popular. We always find one of the... If you ever want to understand deep cleavage between Ireland and England, uh, you should look at every time, you know, the, the, the greatest Britain comes around every 10 years. And Cromwell's usually up there, number one, two, three, or whatever. And in Ireland, the most hated person is usually Cromwell. So that's the sort of, that's the division. But the idea that Cromwell, you know, broke the monarchy broke in order to rebuild, created the new model army, created this new commonwealth, you know, really wrecked in order
4: to rebuild. Yes. I mean, he was, A, driven by some very, very, very strong personal, political, and religious principles. So there was a very, very clear ideology underpinning it. And I think with, with Boris Johnson, there's more of an attitude than an ideology. And secondly, you know, it didn't actually end that well for the Cromwellians in the end. So, you know, they they had a moment in the sun, but the, uh, you know, the monarchy is restored. Uh, there are people, including the Irish, who look back on Cromwell with less than affection. And, you know, although you could argue that parliamentary sovereignty was gained in that crisis, I'm not sure that was specifically what Cromwell was would have said was his primary goal.
2: No, absolutely not. No, well, listen, I was just, I was just an idea when you were saying about breaking up and and, and really being revolutionary. Let's go back to Johnson, Gove. The incel, what's his name? I can't remember. What's his name again? Oh, uh, I'm not
4: falling for that one.
2: Cummings. Oh, uh, Cummings. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Rasputin. Yeah, yeah. well, I would say i prefer to call him an incel. But, anyway, <laughs> you know, this idea that we're now, what, seven weeks out, Robert? I mean, we don't have much time, right? There's a crisis right. now. What's your sense of where they want it to end up? Because Macron was very, very clear. He said, look, you know, we can wait. Their position isn't as strong. And ultimately, Barnier comes back to the basic EU position, which has been kind of unchanged since the start, which is if you want the single market, you need to make sure that you're not undercutting our producers by subsidising your producers with something like a
4: state aid. That hasn't changed at all. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what's, what everybody finds a bit maddening about what's happened this week is that all the noises around the talks were that it is almost done. I mean, it's not done, but they're so close. They can all, everybody can see the landing zone where these negotiations are successfully completed. And yet now we're having this bust up. I think there is a recognition among some European diplomats that perhaps the council wasn't played perfectly well in terms of, you know, the sequencing and the, the, the need to allow everyone to save a bit of face. So there were some mistakes in that, which is why you saw Merkel and Barnier running out quite quickly afterwards. Say, no, 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 no. we we definitely want to intensify the negotiations. And of course, we're not saying at all concessions have to come from Britain. So I think there was was an element of just mistake in here, whether it was a calculated mistake or a a genuine one, I don't know. Um, But there is a a definite desire in Downing Street to land a deal. Uh, And I think most people think they know where that deal lands. The difficulty comes in the fact that Britain and particularly this government is a government that doesn't want to be bound by rules in any respect. I mean, this is not just about the European Union and trade deals. In its structures that it is creating, it wants minimal interference on the right of a government to do what it likes. So their general approach to say, look, don't worry about us on state aid. We're not actually about to do anything preposterously radical, which I think is roughly true. But, you know, we just don't think you have the right to tell us what we do. And on the other hand you have the european union well, yeah but the trouble is every time we think we've got a deal with you every time we think something's agreed you know it turns out that you don't feel bound by it uh, hence the whole row a couple of um weeks back over the internal markets bill and the extent to which britain would be bound by the provisions of the withdrawal agreement so the problem is one side is saying, "Just trust me; I'll be, will we'll be all right." Then doing something that suggests, "Well, maybe you shouldn't," which makes the other side even more literalistic in its approach to the text. So this is the problem: is the uh, fundamentally the lack of trust between the two sides. And it's difficult to see
2: that, in any way, changing over the next couple of months, a couple of weeks. But I mean, clearly, a deal will be done. I mean, it's it's inconceivable that even this radical Conservative government would decide to cut off its rather large upper-class nose, despite its face?
4: Well, it's not inconceivable. I mean, it's not a very rational position, but I think you're talking about a government that really has some baselines. And people look at Boris Johnson and his government and think... This is a man of no great ideology and no great principle. And I think that's also a mistake because there are some bottom lines to these people. And one of them is we are an independent nation. We will not be bound by rules that we think sh- should not bind an independent nation. And I think people have to recognize that too. The UK has left the European union and it me- and this is a government that means to execute that fully. So although I think it is, most likely still that a deal will be done. You know, We've said that all the way through this process. I mean, you and I have been talking about this for years, and at every point we will say, yeah, but they'll get there in the end. And so far that's been true, but it doesn't mean it's always true. And I've always thought that the biggest risk to securing a deal by the time Britain ends its transition period is not the lack of desire for a deal, but that they could just mess it up by misunderstanding each other in some crucial way. And then I think that's more problematic because although the European, Union calculation will be, well, this will be so bad for Britain, it will come grovelling back within, you know, two, three, four, five months, something like that. And then the deal will be done. I think that politically, that becomes very, very problematic for Boris Johnson. So I think the calculation that the EU can afford to let Britain drop out, and then it'll come crawling back quite quickly, is probably a bad one.
2: Now, Robert, if you are sitting in Glasgow or Edinburgh, and you're looking down on all this, and you're a Scottish nationalist, what are you thinking?
4: Well, I think if I was a Scottish nationalist, I would be rubbing my hands at the way this is going at the moment, because everything is moving in the direction of their side of the argument, which is that uh, Brexit, like a number of other things, is something that England has done to Scotland, and it furthers the case for um, independence, which I think is is gaining such a degree of momentum, it's difficult immediately to see how you, you put the stopper back in that bottle. But I think, instead, this is one of the main reasons why I do still believe that Britain will do a deal in the end, which is that within the cabinet, they are very aware and very frightened of Scottish nationalism, and they know how bad this will play in Scotland and how troubling it will be and just how large an SNP victory could be in the elections for the Scottish Parliament next year. So one of the main checks, I think, on the sort of, oh, let's chance it attitude of some towards Brexit is fear of losing Scotland.
2: But that, I mean, in, in, in a way, that's kind of reassuring because it does mean that there's some sort of logical baseline or logical line in the sand for this to say, OK, well, if we do this... It's,
4: it's terribly listen, reassuring, isn't it, David? You know, someone's decided not to burn down their own house because there's a very <laughs> nice jade cat on the bookshelf they'd like to save. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, listen, you know, if I was a Scottish
2: nationalist, I'd be absolutely delighted the way things are going. And, and, uh, and as we've said before, you know, two terms of Boris Johnson please. Uh, and we can wrap this whole thing up, you know. Let's just talk briefly about England. Because the last time we were chatting, you know, we're always again amazed. I mean, it was it, it was said, I think it was Churchill who said, you know, that that, you know, people are divided by a common language, United Kingdom and the United States. In a way, it's kind of the same for Ireland, you know. We're trying to figure out what England is right now. And we're kind of scratching our heads.
4: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's quite a few people in England doing the same thing. I think one of the complexities about Boris Johnson, to me, has always been. Uh, I don't know if you've you've clocked this phrase that he uses about himself. A times, where he called himself a hezer. Um I don't know how much this 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 breaks through, but it, it's a reference to Michael. Michael Hasseltine. Hasseltine. No? Okay, so yeah. what does it mean? What does it So take? Michael Hasseltine was, you know, a, a very substantially one nation, traditional conservative who particularly believed in using the power of the state for good to bolster sections of the economy, particularly, you know. The, the, the left behind regions, the poorer parts of the country, using the power of the state to to, to create stronger British, or in some cases, European uh, business champions. And Boris Johnson's chosen to invoke Michael Leston also, it should be said, a very, very flamboyant character within the Conservative Party, and one you could easily imagine Boris Johnson admiring when he was younger. Boris Johnson's chosen this phrase, I'm a Brexity hezer. And what I think it means is that if you stop focusing on Brexit, you'll find that I'm a very traditional, very normal sort of conservative. And I'm not that threatening or menacing or radical. And my attitudes, particularly on the economy, are about healing and, and, and one nation in the real sense of the phrase. It, one one nation is a phrase that people use about the Conservative Party and they used to, in, in the last two decades, use it to mean rather more progressive, more socially liberal. What it actually means is about finding ways to unite the, the nations of, of Britain, the rich and the poor. It's a Disraeli phrase. And so what... Boris Johnson is really saying is, if you just forget about Brexit, I'm quite a normal conservative leader. Michael Heseltine would argue it's not possible to be a Brexity Heza because Europe was a major part of the vision. But I think what they're trying to say is we're simply trying to restore a bit of balance in in English society and British society, going back to some of the values that we all believe in, but have lost for a variety of different reasons due to globalization, due to the economic power of the South, due to the overponderance of what they would consider to be liberal ideology. And that what you're really getting is an England that we knew maybe 20 years ago. And in terms of its attitudes, I'm not talking about everything else, in terms of attitudes, and they're just trying to restore a bit of balance. That would be the Boris Johnson defence. They're nothing like as surprising or shocking as you think. It's only because people have travelled so far in a certain direction, they've forgotten what the country's about. So it's kind of like we're going to go back to maybe the mid-90s, when Hessel
2: was still knocking around, Oasis, Britpop. The whole carry-on, but, yeah. <laughs> but without the It's working for me already. But without the EU. That's it. But listen, just very, very briefly. How do you think, like, let's just talk about next couple of weeks. You think they'll be back to the table?
4: I think, well, I mean, if you actually noticed what, what, what happened it, when, when Boris Johnson came out and made his statement and M- Michel Barnier said, well, yeah, I'm coming to England on Monday anyway, so, you know, we'll carry on talking there. And then uh, Boris Johnson's tra- uh, Brexit negotiator says, no, no, phones him up says, no, don't bother coming on Monday. Uh, but they've agreed to talk still. So, I mean, I I think if you think of this in relationship terms, it's, you know, don't bother coming around to my house because we're not going on a date, but, you know, call me Wednesday. Yeah, we're still in the game. You know, the game is not over. It still goes on. Most people who are around it still think that there is a deal. And also, by the way, one has to factor into this, that although the European Union has been remarkably uh, united in its approach to Brexit, it is not uniform in its views. And that, you know... Quite a lot of the European Union nations, your own included, really, really do not want to see this end oh, with no FTA.
2: Robert, absolutely, you know Ireland is playing this game that we are deeply uncomfortable with because yeah. we will suffer disproportionately if there is no deal. So, on the one hand, you know, lots of Irish people have this sense of kind of, you know, here, here goes London again, right? But on the other hand. All of us understand I mean you look at the window here in Dunleary, we're looking at it ships going from from Dublin port all of us understand that we need a free trade deal with the United Kingdom more than anybody else so there is a huge constituency and that's not just us the Dutch the Danes the exp- Germans and the Germans but I mean you know basically Ireland Holland and Denmark feed England yeah. we feed you right so yeah. and and we know that tariffs on agricultural goods will be much higher. Than anyone, any any other area. So everyone wants the deal. That's the thing. That's why we're that's why we're now getting a little bit more nervous than we were, let's say, 18 months ago, because there well, is only yeah, seven I, weeks left.
4: I, I think that's absolutely right. All, all, all I mean, I don't think that means that the EU is is is, is secretly terrified and ready no, to concede no, to No, 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 definitely it, not. Not for a second. But I think you know there there is a moment coming for the EU as well where the leaders have to recognize that if this is what we want to do, a deal, there are bottom lines. And they all have to help each other out a little bit. You know, it is about face saving, it is about looking good to their own voters. You know, just as you know, Boris Johnson needs to be seen to fought till the very last minute. You know, Emmanuel Macron cannot entirely sell out his own well, fishermen. I was I was um, gonna
2: say there's never been a French president that loses
4: votes by being
2: horrible to the English.
4: No, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. No, it's, it's, it's part of our unique gift. It's, it's part of our unique gift to to to, to the world. David, is that there's very few presidents anywhere who ever lose any votes by being beastly to the English. Well, I was um, just thinking. I was just thinking. You know, yeah. Actually, um, actually,
2: let's try and think. <laughs> um, but no, but no, but but it is very very clear. But just one last thing is, do you think though? You know, I mean, the bottom line for many people here, and I, I suspect elsewhere in the EU, is look, you left the club. There is a cost leaving the club you got to pay that cost, otherwise the club itself ain't worth
4: joining. Oh, I'm sure that's absolutely, we know that absolutely motivated thinking um, from the very beginning. But I also think we have to, you know, it's very easy as you sit here and and, and talk about things today to lose sight of the historical arcs that are, that are happening here. And the truth is there is going to have to be a trade deal. If it isn't done this year, it'll have to be done next year. The UK is going to spend the next two decades redefining its relationship with the European Union. It's not like it stops in December, whether there is a deal or not. And one of the many reasons why I think Downing Street does want a deal is that actually, if it doesn't get one, then in the minds of the British body politic, Brexit is not actually settled. And someone else can come in and say, look, well, we're great, we voted to leave, but look, you had a go at defining how we left. And you've really last this up. So let's, let's try it differently. And it might be a very different Brexit to the one that leavers want. So Whereas if you have a free trade deal, you have a solid foundational basis for the future discussions, which are going to go on for years. So the truth is, whatever happens at the end of this year, there are, these talks are going to go on because there's new liberalizations, new things, new gains for both sides, new wins for both sides, once you've taken some of the poison out of the, the, the conversation. So yes, it feels very, very drastic now. But the truth is, there is going to be a trade deal. And if it's not by the end of the year, which I still on balance think it will be, it will be next year. So it's just that the terms will get worse and worse for Britain if it's trying to negotiate from a position of weakness. Robert, we will leave it there. Listen, thanks. Thanks a lot. Go
2: back to uh, London at the weekend and I'll talk to you shortly. Pleasure. Good to talk, David. Cheers, Robert. Take care. Uh,
1: Robert never fails to deliver.
2: He's great. He, He's great. He great. You don't get to be the, the, the Financial Times's chief. British political correspondent.
1: Yeah. Without knowing what's well, going on. Well, of course, yeah. But he said a lot of interesting things there. But the one thing that I did pick up on was this has Heza malarkey. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that's saying. Yeah,
2: that, okay, so that, is, that is Boris Johnson's description of himself. I've heard it before. So what he's saying is that I am more like Michael Heseltine. Michael Heseltine was the big beast when we were young of the Conservative Party. Yeah. He was the guy who went against Mrs. Thatcher, first of all, in 1983. Michael Heseltine was kicked out of the cabinet for a row over a helicopter called Westland, you might remember. I remember that story, And he was yeah. always the arch prince of what they were called the Tory wets, the non Thatcherite, non-extreme, yeah. one-nation Tories who were a long line from Disraeli going all the way back. Yeah. Posh, you know, big. And what defined them is this idea of the one nation, yeah. right? So basically that the UK was one nation and it wasn't posh and working class or north or south. It wasn't Irish or northern Irish, Scottish, Welsh. It was all this, and English, it was, it was one nation. It was a
1: very old view of Very, very in, old view. Of and
2: Heseltine, of course, made that flesh by when he was trade secretary.
0: Mm.
2: He put a huge amount of investment into the north, particularly Liverpool. Mm. Because Liverpool was the area that Do you remember Degsy Hatton? Do you ever remember a yeah. guy named Degsy Hatton? Yeah, Derek you, Hatton, right? Yeah. So Liverpool, after, oh, ice, yeah, ice, ice, yeah. after the Croxteth riots, Riot, yeah.
1: 1982,
2: yeah. right? there was a sense that Liverpool was completely lost to London. And that has been the case yeah. all the time, right? And Heseltine, which would have been really pissed off the Scousers because the Scousers wouldn't have liked that type of posh geezer, mm. but he, he created... So, if you've ever been to Liverpool, the docklands in Liverpool have been totally redone. Okay, yeah. Actually, I'll tell you a story about Heseltine the docks. Right, Heseltine redid redid the docks <laughs> in Liverpool. Right, and one of the things was he brought the Tate Gallery. Yeah. From London to Liverpool. Yeah. So there that's was a right, Tate yeah. there, right? And you know our good friend, the artist Gary Coyle. Yeah. Right? So you know my weakness for watching soccer, right? Yeah. for watching the national football team. Yeah. So when I was living in London, I don't know what happened to you, you were in London at the time, but I, for, for some reason you wouldn't go. 1996, when we were talking about Britpop there, right? Yeah. right in the middle of Britpop, Ireland failed to qualify as usual, given what happened this week, for the European Championships, yeah. but we got into a qualifier. A, with Holland. With Holland, Yes, exactly, I do remember this. In Anfield. Yeah. And we were living in London at the time. So I said, I needed someone to go to the game with me, right? Yeah. And I said to Gary, will you come? And he says, look, I'll only go to the game with you. And I've been to subsequent games. You come to an art gallery, I'll go to football, right? That was okay. the trade-off, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that's all right. And you know me, I've yeah. known nothing about art, right? So I said, fine. So we got the, we got the, the train up to, to Liverpool, the afternoon of the game. I'm in my colours yeah. and Gary's in his Bertie Wooster suit, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I said, "Okay, the game is on." You know, tonight in Anfield, and of course, you're going to the Holy of Holies. You're going to Anfield as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. And Gary says, "That's fine," but we've got to go to the art. Right. I said, "Fine." He says, "Where? Is... I'm going to take you to the Tate, and I'm going to show you some art. I'm going to educate you, you philistine." Yeah. So I said, "All right, that's grand." So I go into the Tate Gallery, yeah, and it's in the Docklands, built by Hesselton, yeah, right. And I'm in my Irish colours, <laughs> and Gary looks like an art critic, and there's a little scally. From a YTS scheme on the coats, right? Right. Full shell suit, Liverpool. Yeah. And he looks at me, he goes, "You're in the wrong fucking place, mate." Because he could never conceive of a football fan going to see art. And he looked at me and he says, "You're all right." He looked at Gary, he says, "I'm not having him." But he looked at me, he says, "You're in the wrong fucking place, mate. <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, that was my and Ireland, unfortunately, got hockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, that's my Michael
1: just... Heseltine, Liverpool. I... One Nation Tory. Yeah. I do remember actually going to Bilbao with the lads to watch the rugby. Do you remember we did that big walk in the Picos and stuff? And when we got to Bilbao, we were killing a bit of time. And we were all a bit bedraggled after a week of walking. And we went down to, you know, the Guggenheim Museum is there. is a fantastic building. Yeah, 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 even yeah. just from the outside. And uh, we all, we walked around. And there's a brilliant picture of the lads just sitting on the thing looking away from the building. The Bart Stewart, Guggenheim, Schmuggenheim. <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> well,
2: actually, you know we're going to talk about later? I'll also tell you another story about Gary and I and our, one of our other soccer trips, trip to Israel. Oh, right, like, yeah. To watch the Republic against Israel. And, of course, Israel's full of galleries and art and history, and la, la, la. And, uh, but it's interesting Enough about day. Guggenheim because Bilbao... Remember we spoke about architecture, urban renewal, all that stuff. Yeah, great
1: example of it.
2: And Bilbao was an industrial Basque city, industry right in the centre of it. Mm. And in order to change the whole vibe of the city, they commissioned the Guggenheim to recreate the Frank Lloyd Wright building in New York, or a version of this. Yeah. And everyone, of course, said, oh, it's a total waste of time, it's a waste of money, nobody's ever going to go to Bilbao, blah blah." blah." even though Bilbao has the huge Guernica history of Picasso. But the very act of architecturally saying, no, we're going to make a statement about the way the city feels about itself, Mm. profoundly changed the city and its orientation towards tourism and culture and high art and everything. Irish cities need to do the same thing, make an architectural statement. Yeah. Say, this is the way we're going, you know. We, what we do is we allow buildings to go derelict and don't recreate this idea. So you're right, the Bilbao, Michael time, Bilbao, look, we're all over the shop. <laughs>
1: Oasis, Ireland, Paggy Bonner. Well, the, the thing that struck me actually was when Robert was talking about breaking everything. Yeah, it's very, very radical uh, stuff. But, it, very radical stuff, but breaking everything without a plan. So you kind of... You're in the arms of serendipity, there, aren't you? Which we ain't well, a great strategy. Well, it's
2: an inter- it's 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 interesting, but there is a deep school of political philosophy that talks about crushing things in order to rebuild. That the actual essential energy that comes with destroying creates the background noise in order to recover. And to there's always
1: collateral damage. Yeah,
2: in that. but I mean, what they're saying is, I mean. There is a radical element to Cummins in particular. And what he seems to believe is that the United Kingdom is so hostage to vested interests, it's a very revolutionary idea, that you have to smash everything. Civil service, the aristocracy, Mm. the House of Lords, all these things, right? The, 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 The police force, the education service, the health service. You actually have to smash it up in order to create the right environment for something to be rebuilt. And it's it's like people playing
1: FIFA, mm-hmm, but not yeah. playing soccer. Yeah, I, I, I it's know. It's a sort of a
2: simulation mean. approach to, to things. But it is, it, it is, it is revolutionary. It's, it's
1: anti-conservative. Just, yeah, but it's not just a British thing. No, I mean, no, no, this, it's this a worldwide is, thing. This is a global thing as well. It's like, you know, in America, Trump is doing exactly the same thing. He's smashing things up. Yeah. Possibly without a plan. Um, Definitely without a plan. But, you know, even things like the Arab Spring, you know, it was the whole kind of tear down the the system to rebuild as well.
2: But I mean, the difference is the Arab Spring is a normal revolutionary process where the outsiders on the street attack the insiders in the castle. Sure. Here it's the insiders in the castle who've actually ascended to power are going to break the whole thing up. And that's quite different what makes it so weird in the English context is you think about the Conservative Party. Think about the word, it's called conserve. Mm. We are conserving things. We are protecting things. We want to conserve Britain as it is. Yeah. So if the party was called the Radical Party, you could understand it, but its traditions, and he, he mentioned Edmund Burke, man, Yeah. His the traditions are all about slow, incremental change and conserving the best bits. What Johnson seems to want to do is smash up all the bits and then see what he has at the end. But
1: well, where do we go from here? Like, the next few weeks are going to be really crucial.
2: And particularly for us, John. Yeah, yeah. Because one of Ireland's problems, I always try to visualise, the way I think about the world, I always think of mm. pictures, right? Try to visualise how what's going on. And did you ever see a jockey riding two horses? <laughs> did you ever see, you know, the, when we were young, there was, there was always racing on television, yeah, right? Yeah, And at the end of the race, it'd be loose horses. Fellas, horses that had lost their jockeys, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And a young jockey would be told to go out and get the two horses, loose horses. Right. So he'd put the two horses together, he'd ride the pair of them. Right. right? Now imagine Ireland is the jockey, Britain is one horse, and the European Union is the other horse, right? Yeah. Because we do so much trade with the Brits. We have so much cultural links with the Brits. Our families are over there. I mean, they're 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 basically our cousins, right? Yeah. But the European Union are our lawmakers, our political bed. We've made our political bed with them, right? So imagine the two horses. There's one horse, Britain, one horse, Europe, and Ireland is a little jockey, right?
3: Yeah.
2: As long as those two horses are going together, the jockey's position it's fine. Yeah. is fine. It's quite comfortable. Yeah. But once those two horses start going apart, the jockey's nether regions get out of sorts, yeah. right? So we are the jockey. So what we need to do is keep the two horses together in as much as possible. This is why Brexit is such a complicated issue for us because we are stuck in the middle in many ways. Yeah. Our political class wants to say, we are pro-European. But our business class, our commercial class, people who buy and sell, retailers who source so much in the UK, understand that the UK for us is not like Spain. It's our biggest importing partner. We import, even though we export only about 15% of the UK, we do import 30%, which is why so many goods are warehoused in the UK and then Flogged on to us. So, like a big company like Zara, for example, Yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll warehouse it in the UK and then they have a little bit going to Ireland. So, imagine the jockey and the two horses. So, the reason it's critical for us to get a deal is to put the horses back moving together so that we can continue to ride the pair of them.
1: Is that possible?
2: Ever tried to ride two people? <laughs> <laughs> now, while well, I have you, while well, I have your ear. If you like the podcast, if you like what John and I are doing, if you like the stories, you like the research, if you want to learn economics, if you want to do a a twice-a-month bespoke tutorial called Ask Mac, if you want to do the any questions, and you want to listen and and ask us questions, by all means, we would love to hear from you. So support us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's probably the best few quid you're going to spend.